I'm Jerem Bars. I have a wife named Vicky. Uh, I'm from England. You can still tell from my accent. Um, got a bit of it left. Uh, my wife's from California. Uh, we met uh, almost, yeah, just right around uh, 44 years ago. We got uh, uh, engaged in Switzerland. That's where we met each other uh, and married that Christmas. And uh, just to tell you a little bit about myself, I come from a non-Christian family. Uh, which is typical, of course, in Britain, where less than 5% of the population are Christians. So I grew up in a completely non-Christian setting. In fact, my dad was a communist. That was the context in which I was raised. Uh, I was converted at university uh, in my senior year uh, through, uh, some of you have probably heard of Francis Schaeffer and Edith Schaeffer in the Ministry of Labrie. Uh, well, I was converted through a Canadian friend who had been very impacted by the Schaeffers and by the Ministry of Labrie, who was a student at the university, and uh, who answered my questions and led me to the Lord and completely turned my life upside down. Uh, after graduation, uh, because I just had no idea you know, what I ought to be doing, because my life had changed so utterly, becoming a Christian, uh, Mike suggested I go to uh, Labrie in Switzerland, and so the day after graduation I hit, hitchhiked over to Switzerland, and uh, just for a couple of weeks, uh, my parents, you know, uh, they didn't mind. Uh, they uh, were just glad I was glad to live, and uh, rather than end my life, because I had been suicidal, thinking life was utterly absurd, and so uh, even though I wasn't you know, going in some career direction, they were just thrilled uh, that I was uh, I was happy, glad to be living. So uh, they raised no objection. I went off over to Switzerland for two weeks, ended up staying there and becoming a member of the staff there at Labrie in Switzerland. I was actually Edith Schaefer's cook, and uh, that's what I did that year. And uh, it wasn't an easy job. Uh, we were feeding lots of people, often at the weekend, a hundred uh, making bread for a hundred people and pizza for a hundred people and whatever else. But uh, so life, it was very challenging work. And uh, met my wife there. She was Schaefer's secretary, uh, doing his correspondence and typing up the manuscripts of his first book, The God Who Was There, Escape from Reason. This was 1967. And uh, we met that fall, got married that Christmas, carried on working there, and then Schaefer sent me to Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. Uh, and so I went there in the late 60s. That was the seminary that he was personally associated, associated with. He was friends with many of the men on the faculty, and he would go there regularly to give special lecture series. Uh, and so I went there, and uh, after graduation, uh, went back to England and worked for Labrie there, a new branch that just opened there in the south of England, and planted a church there. So I was a pastor there in England, uh, and church planter, I guess, for for 18 years there. And the seminary kept asking if I'd come back and teach, and so finally I went 22 years ago. So uh, that's where I am now. I teach um, apologetics and evangelism, uh, and also in the practical theology department, and uh, just anything else uh, I can. I'm teaching a class on children's literature at the moment, and uh, Tolkien next semester, and uh, lots of other things. But uh, but basically, I teach evangelism and uh, pastoral theology. Those are my two 
uh, areas of required classes that all the students take that I teach. So it's a little bit about me. I have three grown sons who are in their 30s and uh, all married and seven little grandchildren. So uh, I am a patriarch now. So that's a a wonderful stage of life uh, to be at. So uh, that's a little bit about about, about me. So uh, I know people often think if you're teaching at a seminary, you lose touch with the church. Um, Sort of got your head in an academic cloud, and that certainly isn't true. Um, Covenant's a, a, a wonderful place to work, and basically everybody on the faculty has been a pastor, and we all still are uh, involved in all kinds of pastoral ministry all the time. So, uh, so I'm regularly teaching and ministering in other ways in local churches, doing weddings and funerals and all kinds of things that, uh, and of course, pastoring our students, many of whom are in very great need themselves, coming from the very broken culture uh, in which we all live. And uh, probably half of our students at any one time are, are coming from very broken family situations themselves. So lots of very, very needy young men and women coming to study with us, and we're all spending a good part of our time uh, pastoring them. Why, why did I go to teach at Covenant? And that really brings us uh, uh, kind of into the subject which Paul's asked me to address this evening. Uh, and please feel free to stop me at any point and, and just ask questions. I'd much rather spend the whole evening answering your questions than just talking up here. So, so uh, please uh, don't hesitate to stop me. If you want me to expand on anything, you know, if, you, if I say something you think, can that be right? Uh, I'm not sure I agree with that. Don't, don't hesitate to stop me because uh, I won't be offended um, in any way. Having worked in Labrie for 20 years of my life, uh, constantly surrounded by both unbelievers and believers, we, the sort of ground rule was no questions are off limits. If Christianity is true, you can raise any objection you like, any problem, any question, we'll talk about it. We don't have to be afraid. Let's bring it out into the open and discuss it. Uh, and that was challenging at first. Uh, when I first went to work there uh, in 1971, uh, after seminary, to sit at the table and have people asking me impossible questions, wishing the floor would swallow me up and uh, you know, finding that very, very challenging. But uh, it, was, it was a wonderful education uh, to be... Uh, have every day of your life people asking you questions about things you've never thought of and then having to go away and study them, think about them and try to answer their questions and uh, it was a wonderful thing but, uh, but a very rigorous education uh, from people's own questions and needs. But why, why did I go to seminary? I was very happy where we were. Why did I come back to the seminary to teach there? We're very happy working in Labrie, though it's very demanding because Labrie is fundamentally a, a ministry. It's difficult to describe. It's like a cross between an extended family and a study center. So my wife and I would serve uh, lunch every day for anywhere between 15 and 30 people in our home and breakfast probably three or four times a week, lunch five or six times a week, dinner once a week. and. Uh, got people there living with you, sitting at your table, asking questions, you're serving them in this, basically it's a ministry of hospitality. 
people are asking their questions, they're doing personal study under tutorial direction, lots of lectures, lots of preaching, teaching in, in that setting. So we love that work that was very demanding. Uh, Labrie is the kind of ministry that kills you basically uh, because it, it, it takes so much out of you because people are in your life so completely. Um, at the same time as a pastor and we planted this church there which grew from five people to about 250 by the time I left which is huge in a in a English rural setting uh, in a context where there were almost no Christians at all in the area when we moved there and we had seen the Lord save a lot of people and my wife for my wife still uh, her closest friends in the world are back there in England so the move was very challenging we were really at home there uh, why did I come back to St. Louis to teach? Um, well, the seminary kept asking me, but that wasn't really uh, in the end why I came. Um, uh, what it was was this. I, I, I observed as the years went by that there are many pastors who come to Labrie uh, and people in ministry, all different ministry like Young Life, Campus Crusade, InterVarsity, and the Navigators, you know, any ministry you can you've heard of, they probably, people from there have come to Labrie as well as always lots of non-Christians. So you've got mature believers coming and new believers, young believers, people struggling and also non-Christians all coming to ask their questions and work things through. But I observed that more and more of the people in ministry who came and more and more of the mature Christians who came were more and more alarmed by what was happening in the culture uh, around us. More troubled by it uh, and more in a way kind of retreating from it. Uh, feeling, I, I heard Christians constantly being very critical uh, of unbelievers and of the secular culture around them. And at the same time, uh, I saw people who had less and less idea of how to reach out to the people around them who weren't Christians. So on, on the one hand, there was a kind of, uh, of a kind of cultural retreat by Christians from unbelievers. Um, I, I met many people who, who personally knew, knew no non-Christians at all well, but were simply very critical of them and who wanted to keep their children especially safe from corruption by the world, by unbelievers. And th these two things deeply troubled me. First, the, the, the kind of sense of alienation by Christians from the people around them and judgment that went with that. And secondly, along with that, the, the kind of personal retreat from it from knowing non-Christians well because this isn't safe for myself or for my children. And I met more and more people like that. And obviously when that happens, evangelism becomes extremely difficult. If you don't actually know non-Christians well, then talking to unbelievers who you don't know well, comfortably, about the gospel becomes more and more difficult. Uh, and 
in reaction to that, I saw Christians coming up with all kinds of programmatic methods of evangelism to, to f come in and fill this hole. So if we are retreating personally and not wanting to know unbelievers, well then, how are we going to do the work of evangelism? It becomes much more difficult. So I saw people bewildered by the culture, uh, threatened and troubled by the culture. And uh, my computer's going to sleep here. That's not very helpful. That's what happens when you just ignore it. And uh, I have to start it again. But um, so threatened and troubled by the culture. And uh, at the same time, retreating from it and also being very, very kind of troubled about how to do evangelism. And so the reason I went to start teaching at Covenant was oh, I have a passion for evangelism. I, I have done my whole life. I come from a completely non-Christian background, you know, from parents and brother and sister who were not believers. Everybody I knew uh, as a child, as a young person at college was not a Christian until I met this one believer uh, at university through whom I was converted. Uh, and uh, I have still continued all my life to stay close to many non-Christian friends. And I was a pastor of a church that was growing uh, with steadily pe seeing people converted. Uh, and uh, and working in Labrie, of course, with non-Christians uh, all the time. Uh, that, was, uh, that was just my life talking to uh, unbelievers about the gospel and uh, uh, a part of my life I'd, I delight in. And so uh, I, when the seminary asked me uh, for maybe the 10th time whether I was going to come and teach, uh, finally uh, I said yes um, because I felt uh, that the Lord was calling me to try to be some kind of help to the church, to people going into the pastorate, going into ministry of one kind or another, youth ministry, every kind of ministry, uh, to be some kind of help in this area of how, how are we called to communicate the gospel to non-Christians. Um, and so uh, I accepted the call to covenant 22 years ago, and uh, that's what I've been doing ever since. Uh, it's teaching uh, evangelism there, apologetics, whatever you want to call it, in my mind, those two terms are interchangeable. Uh, I don't teach uh, what people often think of as apologetics, a kind of academic subject which has very little relationship to ministry. Uh, I am really trying to uh, teach apologetics in a way which will uh, help our students to start loving unbelievers uh, and start communicating well to them and having a passion to do that uh, all their lives. That's, that's my longing. So, you know, in talking to Paul before I came, and we, we talked about what should I talk about, uh, we came up with this title, Holiness and Purity, uh, the Barrier in the Way of Outreach. And I know it's a kind of provocative title, but, uh, but uh, uh, it really does explain what I want to talk about. And as we begin to look at that subject... Uh, I want to begin with the criticism uh, that is made of Jesus in the Gospels. And the primary 
reason for which Jesus is criticized by his contemporaries is his passion for outreach. Let me give you a series of examples. If you look at Luke 15, for example, we all know the the passage because we are all accustomed, if we're preachers or teachers, to teaching on the parables in here, especially the parable of the prodigal son or the two lost sons and the parable of the lost sheep. But there's another parable in the middle there, the lost coin. But the context of those parables is one of criticism of Jesus. The chapter begins, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That's their criticism. And what is Jesus' response? His response is to tell these three stories. The story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, and the story of the lost son. And all of those stories are about the mission of God's kingdom to the lost. uh, And they're all about mercy. Uh, That's what those three parables are about. God's mission to the lost and parables of mercy. A second example, and I'm going to uh, be preaching on this passage tomorrow morning, is Luke 19. And it's the account of Jesus and Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Uh, And uh, when Jesus invites himself uh, to dinner and spending the rest of the day at this tax collector's home, uh, on this occasion it's not just the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who are upset, it's the whole crowd, this great mass of people who are following Jesus out of Jericho where he's just healed a blind man. And it says, when they saw it, that is that Zacchaeus received Jesus joyfully and they went off to Zacchaeus' home together. They all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And again, Jesus' response on this occasion is this. He says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Uh, He gives a, a definition of his purpose in being in this world at all. That's why he came to seek and to save the lost. Uh, And that's why he does the things he does. Now, we all understand that because we know the gospel is about saving the lost, but the question is, what impact does that actually have on our personal lives? Uh, On Jesus' personal life, it has this impact in terms of whose home he goes to, where he goes to eat, the people he is with. Another occasion is Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9 and verses 10 through 13. And this is on the occasion where Jesus is called Matthew, uh, who was a tax collector himself. He's called Matthew to follow him. And uh, Jesus says after this, reclined at table in the house, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus making a very similar response uh, here, that he came for the sick, uh, not the well, uh, not the righteous, uh, but uh, the sinful. And uh, fundamentally to their criticism, he replies, Learn what this means, I desire mercy. I'll come back to that. Uh, Next passage is Matthew 11, verses 18 through 19. Uh, On this occasion, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. And uh, he says this, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton, and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Another example, Luke seven thirty-six through 50. On this occasion, uh, they're in the home of Simon the Pharisee, where Jesus has been invited for dinner. And during dinner, this woman who's clearly been a prostitute, uh, a woman who's lived a very sinful life, Uh, comes into the house and you all know the story. She washes Jesus' feet with her tears and wipes them dry with her hair and uh, anoints them with oil. And uh, the Pharisee is scandalized. And he doesn't say anything out loud. After all, Jesus is his guest. But in his heart, uh, he thinks uh, clearly Jesus is not from God. Uh, Otherwise, he would know what kind of woman this is and he wouldn't allow her to touch him in this very intimate and personal way. Jesus' response on this occasion is to tell a story about debts and mercy uh, and to tell her that her sins are forgiven. Now, in all of these passages, uh, and these are basically the fundamental reason why Jesus is criticized by his contemporaries, Almost all the criticisms of Jesus focus around this issue. Now, what are they doing? Why are they criticizing him? Well, fundamentally, what they're focusing on is Jesus' lack of purity, on Jesus' lack of holiness. They believe that Jesus cannot be a faithful representative of God cannot be from God, cannot be righteous and pure and holy himself because of the company that he keeps. That's their criticism. Because of his intimacy with sinners. Whether that intimacy, and I use the word purposely, intimacy, intimacy with sinners, whether it's the way the woman touches him, washing his feet, or most especially the eating together. Because biblically, all the way through scriptures, eating together is the sign of personal fellowship. Oh, it's the sign of personal fellowship between God and his people. Oh, there are uh, 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 meals in the tabernacle or temple after you've offered a sacrifice where you sit down and eat in the presence of God, signifying that you are reconciled to him, that you have fellowship with him. Uh, when Moses is given the law 
uh, the elders of Israel are invited up with Moses and Aaron up onto the mountain and they eat and drink in the presence of God. Uh, later there in Exodus 24. Uh, the Passover so is a meal celebrating uh, God's redemption, God's love, God's mercy. God's not judging his people. Uh, this is the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate regularly as believers. It's fundamentally Christ inviting us to his table to eat with him, uh, to eat at his table as his guests. And we look forward to the consummation of our relationship with Christ when we will sit at his table and be served by him in his kingdom uh, and eat and drink with him uh, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So eating together biblically signifies personal intimacy. And that is why Jesus is criticized. The Jews at Jesus in Jesus' day had many laws about who you could eat with. Uh, for example, the Jews were forbidden to eat with Gentiles. Because Gentiles, because they're Gentiles, simply are unclean, unholy, impure. Uh, you can think of Peter, for example, in, in Acts chapter 10, when he gets to the house of Cornelius, who is a godly Gentile, a God-fearer, uh, and who is known for his acts of, of devotion and generosity. But when Peter gets there to Cornelius' home, his first words are, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to visit with a Gentile or to eat with him. So Peter quotes that law. And he says, well, may I ask you know, what I'm doing here? You know, why am I here? They weren't very gracious words of Peter uh, to enter somebody's home where there's this great gathering of Cornelius, his family, his household, his soldiers, you know, his friends and neighbors. They're all there. Just a huge gathering to listen. And those are Peter's first words. It's against our law for me to be here with you dirty people, basically. Um, that's really what he's saying. Uh, you unholy, you impure people. There were laws against eating with Gentiles. There were laws against eating with Samaritans. That's why the Samaritan woman is so astonished. I'm going to speak about this in Sunday school tomorrow morning, why the Samaritan woman is so astonished when Jesus' first words to her are to ask her to give him a drink. She says, how can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Because Samaritans and Jews have nothing to do with each other. Uh, and then, of course, Jesus stays in the village for two days, and there's no kosher restaurant there or little store. You know, he's uh, eating Samaritan food along with his disciples. Uh, there were laws as well against Gentiles, against Samaritans. There were laws about Jews not eating in the home of unclean Jews or having any personal fellowship with them. So somebody like Zacchaeus or Matthew, who as tax collectors are working for the Romans, they're associating all the time with Gentiles, so they have an unclean profession. Uh, and there are laws against eating with anybody like that. And there are many laws against any personal association with sinners. So many laws about holiness for the Jews of Jesus' day. And, of course, these laws are not God's law. They're not Old Testament laws. 
if you read the Old Testament, you will see that there are dozens and dozens of commandments about being hospitable and merciful and kind and generous to aliens, that is, to Gentiles. In fact, mercy is at the heart of the Old Testament law. And that is why Jesus says what he does. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I don't want you offering me all your definitions of what holiness and purity are. Uh, The law of God calls you to practice mercy. At the heart of all Old Testament law is God's gracious mission to a sinful people who he has delivered and his calling to that people to take that mission to the world. That is the calling of the descendants of Abraham and Sarah through every generation to come, to be a blessing to the nations. And many of the commands of Israel are very explicit about that, about mercy to the widow, to the orphan, to the poor, to the alien, that is to the Gentile. So all those laws about mercy are set aside by first century Judaism in the name of personal holiness, in the name of purity. And again, that is why Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, when he is criticized for the company he keeps. Now, Jesus uh, is criticized Uh, for other things as well. Another example is in Mark chapter 7. And I won't read the whole passage to you, but uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with it. But it's the occasion where a deputation from Jerusalem uh, of Pharisees and teachers of the law comes and they criticize Jesus and his disciples because they do not wash their hands uh, before they eat. Now, the criticism has nothing to do with hygiene. Uh, It has to do with laws of ritual purity. Uh, And what had happened in Jesus' day was something like this. Uh, In Jesus' day, the the Jewish teachers looked at the Old Testament and they saw that in the Old Testament law, the priests and the Levites are, are called to be holy to the Lord. The priest actually wore a label on his head saying, holy to the Lord. And when they undertook their duties in the temple or the tabernacle, they had to go through a ritual washing in that huge laver that was there uh, to be cleansed to serve God in his house. Now, as they looked at the Old Testament, they saw that the Lord taught that all his people are priests. Exodus 19, you all know the passage. You are a nation of priests, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So they reasoned like this, and we know their reasoning pretty well. We can trace it uh, in their writings. Oh, It is not just the priests who work in the temple who are holy to the Lord. Uh, all of us are. So wouldn't it be appropriate? Wouldn't it be godly? Wouldn't it be devout if we apply to ourselves the things that God asked the priests and Levites to do as they undertook his ministry? We recognize that 
There is no distinction between the sacred and the secular. That's perfectly true. They recognize we are called to be holy to the Lord too. That's perfectly true. So we will require of ourselves and our fellow Jews what God required of the priests and the Levites as a recognition that we are all priests to the Lord. We are all holy to the Lord. We want to offer our homes to him. We want to offer ourselves to him. So they develop these rituals of washing their hands to express their devotion to the Lord, these rituals of washing their vessels of their dining room tables and their kitchen utensils and their tables and couches. Mark refers to all those things. They had many laws like this because they said, my home is a temple to the Lord. It is a house of the Lord too, which of course is true. But then they asked all the Jews as a sign of their devotion to the Lord to obey these rules that they came up with. And that's the context of what Jesus has to say. Uh, and so the criticism is, why are your disciples ignoring the tradition of the elders? You know, this great body of traditions that they've come up with. Uh, and Jesus uh, replies uh, to it uh, in this way. To this uh, desire for holiness, because that's what it is. Now, all the laws about not eating with sinners and Gentiles and Samaritans all had to do with this devotion to holiness and purity. That's their motivation. Uh, and we have many rules in evangelicalism today about personal holiness and personal devotion. Uh, and many of them have good motivations as well. Uh, a motivation to be serving God well, to... Uh, be separated to him, uh, to keep ourselves apart from uh, those who are sinners, and especially to raise our children in godliness and holiness, to walk in the ways of the Lord. And so, just like uh, the Jews of the first century, we ask, how could God fail to be pleased by our desire to honor him in everything we do? We make God's laws more explicit in all kinds of ways. One of the challenges for any pastor teaching or preaching, anyone in leadership, is application. How am I going to apply God's word? And there is a temptation to apply it by basically giving people a set of rules about what they are to do in their marriages, in their family life, the movies they watch, the books they read, everything else. Endless articles and magazines and radio and television programs doing precisely this. Defining in more detail than God has done what obedience to the Lord means. What righteousness means. What purity means. Now the zeal is well intentioned. It was well intentioned in Jesus' day. We want to give the Pharisees and the teachers of the law the benefit of the doubt and argue that their zeal was well-intentioned in making God's commandments more explicit and spreading them out into every detail of their lives. Let's assume that it had the best intention. Well, what was Jesus' response to this? These are his words. He said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doc doctrines the commandments of men. 
you leave the commandment of God and hold the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is devoted to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Now Jesus makes a series of criticisms here. The first is, this is all hypocrisy. That is, it's just on the outside. All the laws of Judaism in the first century aimed not at the heart, but at external behavior. Who do you eat with? Uh, what kind of ritual washing will you go through? God's commandments aim at the heart. All the rules of evangelicalism today deal with externals. They don't aim for the heart. This well, rules about what music to listen to, you know, who your friends are going to be, uh, the kind of clothes you wear. Uh, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with the girls that do or uh, whatever it is, whatever way you want to express it. You know, are we going to read Harry Potter? Are we going to watch these movies? Are we going to listen to this music? Um, Etc. What kind of clothes are we going to wear? Uh, what company are we going to keep? One uh, of the things, they all aim at externals. Uh, we may say they have the intention of creating devotion and righteousness. But the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 2, all the rules for the outside like that have absolutely no value in restraining the indulgence of the sinful nature. It's Colossians 2.23. We can adopt any rule you like, but it actually... Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, let me give you a very specific example, which may be offensive to some of you, and, and I apologize if it is, but I'll, I'll use it because it's a real example. This is a couple of years ago. One of our graduates who's planted a church down in Texas telephoned me, and he said, Jerem, I have two problems. He said, well, first let me say the church plant is going really well. It's just flourished. Uh, we have had lots of people become Christians. But he said, I have a, a general problem, and then I have a very particular question I want to ask you. My, my general problem is that Christian families will start coming to our church, mature Christian families, and after six months they'll leave. And they tell me they love the preaching, uh, they love the worship, but they just can't cope with having their children, having all these non-Christian kids who are coming to your church with the stuff they wear, the clothes they wear, the rings and this and that, and the hairstyles and the language and all the other things because there are all these families coming who are getting converted and they bring their children and uh, their children don't fit in culturally with what the mature Christian families are used to. And so they say for the sake of our children we're leaving because we, we are not 
putting up with this, having our children having to mix every Sunday with children who are from such different kinds of backgrounds. So that's my general problem. And he said, I just, I guess I just have to live with that. But he said, I have a, a specific problem, uh, which I suppose is related to it. He said, we are planning to have a pool party for our teenagers to invite their friends. And uh, you can guess what's coming. And, uh, and uh, he said, uh, when they heard about it, uh, another PCA church in town, the pastor's wife came to see me and said, this is a wonderful idea. You know, can we join you in this? And uh, he said, yeah, she said, but um, we've got to have some rules if we're going to have a pool party. Uh, and the first rule has to be none of the girls can wear two-piece bathing suits because teenage boys have raging hormones and it's not fair on them. It's true teenage boys have raging hormones. But, uh, but uh, he said to her, but if we have a rule like that, my daughters, he had three daughters in high school, he said, my daughters won't be able to invite any of their non-Christian friends because they won't come. They'll say, you're crazy having a rule like this. We're not coming to a pool party where there's rules about what kind of swimwear we can, we can put on. And uh, the pastor's wife looked at him and said, your daughters should not know girls like that. He said, what am I going to do? And I said, well, you, you just tell them, have their own party. Your, your calling as a church is to serve the mission of God to the world. And if you start having rules like that, most of the non-Christian kids in your community will not come, ever. What are you there for? You're for the world. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And he desires mercy. He doesn't want a pile of rules. So Jesus' first criticism is hypocrisy. These rules just aim for the outside, like that swimwear rule. It aims for the outside, yes. It may say its motivation is sexual purity, but it's a rule for the outside. And fundamentally, of course, what it's saying, uh, and this is a very profound issue, what it's saying to the non-Christian is if you wear the right clothes, then you're a person who we're prepared to preach the gospel to. And you're a person we're prepared to have a relationship with. It's basically kind of justification by clothes. I mean, it is. It's justification by behavior. We can make many other many other examples of this. It, it's the same if we say, well, you know, if, if you'll move out from living with your boyfriend, you know, then we'll spend time talking together and you know, then we'll share the gospel to you. If you get your sexual life sorted out, then, then you can hear the gospel. But we cannot set a series of hurdles in front of the gospel. Jesus didn't set any hurdles. He went to the home of Zacchaeus, who was a wicked and corrupt man, because he came to seek and save the lost. And if we put hurdles in people's way, external hurdles, we're being hypocrites, as Jesus himself said, 
But then Jesus makes two other criticisms which are even more powerful. His, his second criticism is this, that these are just the commandments of men. His point is very simple. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, God's people are forbidden to take away from God's commandments and they're forbidden to add to them. God has given church leaders no authority whatsoever to make new laws for the people of God. Actually, in the PCA, our, our book of church order actually says it. Our authority is not legislative. It is declarative. Now, I'm called to teach God's word and apply that to people not make laws for people's lives. God has not given the church any authority to make laws that are binding on anybody else's conscience or life. That's a very serious issue. It's one of the great temptations to pastors and Christian leaders to make rules. Uh, we're forbidden to do it by Scripture. We have no right to do it. No right at all. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, you can be. Uh, of course, there are biblical principles, but it then again becomes a matter of application. Uh, am I content? I, I have three sons, you know, who are all in the thirties now. But I mean, they grew up in this culture. It's a very challenging culture to grow up in sexually, as well as in many other ways. Uh, and yes, you teach your children principles but you teach them principles of, of moral chastity and purity and fidelity. Not a list of rules. They won't help you. And they won't help them either. When they go off to college, if they have a load of rules, they have nothing to protect them from. Um, protect them from this. Two of my boys, my two eldest sons, they got to college, one at Princeton and one at UCLA. The one at Princeton, in his dorm room, he's sharing a room with, with another guy. They, were, they had two bedrooms and a living space, two men in each of the bedrooms. The guy on the bunk bed below him had his girlfriend in at night. Uh, no rules I, I could have given him would have helped him for such a situation. Uh, you have to have a commitment to sexual chastity from the heart. And your children need to be taught that first by your example, you know, if as a father or mother you have wandering eyes sexually, doesn't matter what you say, your children will see it. But didn't you have rules in your home as he was growing up? Not about things like that. Not to have girls up in his room? No, we didn't have such rules. We didn't have such rules. You teach... I, 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 at the, with all due respect, uh -huh. and, uh, and maybe I won't be uh, a false friend anymore after this. <laughs> This is a this is a serious tension here, mm. but I don't I don't think it's either one or the other. I, I think it's both, and I just uh, maybe I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop here. Well, well, that, well if you just hold on, maybe I'll okay. get there. Okay. Uh, maybe right. I'll get there. It's a great question. Yeah, I mean, you. Paul tells Timothy, watch your 
teaching and your life, right? There is a, there is, there is something about lifestyle. Yeah. Well, don't don't misunderstand me. I'm not. I'm, I, I'm not. I've written down. One, one one of my students said to me, you know, I am a very gentle man by conviction and by nature, and by the by the grace of the Lord, I I trust. But one of my students said to me one day, when we were talking about rules for teenagers stood up at the back of the class and said, you're just giving teenagers a license to have sex with each other. And I was enraged. Uh, And uh, I said, and it just came out without uh, any reflection, I said, if I were a dragon, I would breathe fire and consume you right now. Uh, Which uh, I felt dreadful about afterwards and of course had to apologize both privately to the student and publicly. Uh, but I love the law of God passionately. I was talking with Paul about this over supper. And one of the great weaknesses in our churches is the failure to teach God's commandments and to teach people to be in love with righteousness. So I have a passionate love for God's commandments. And as a father, I have a, had a passionate love for teaching my sons sexual purity and chastity. First, by example. Second, by praying for them. And thirdly, by teaching them. But rules will not help you to get your kids to become sexually chaste. Obviously, when children are small, you you have to have some rules. Uh, You're going to say, you're going to hold my hand crossing the road because they'll get killed by running in front of a car. You're going to have a gate at the bottom of the stairs because they can't deal with stairs. And, But as they grow, of course, you take the gate away. You let them cross the road by themselves. You even let them drive a car, even though you're terrified when they first start driving a car. And you let them start making their choices about when they're coming home. If you have a curfew on your teenagers until they leave home you haven't helped them when they get to college by the time they go to college they have got to be able to make sensible decisions themselves about getting enough sleep about where they're going to be at night there's nobody there saying you can't have a girl in your room yeah I taught my my sons to be sexually chaste and they are happily married after a life of chastity. And that's not common today. I was saying to Paul, I assume now that 90% of the marriages I do, including of Christians, that they will already be sexually experienced. 30 years ago, that was not true. So I don't doubt that it's necessary to teach very passionately and very clearly about sexual purity. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. What I am saying is that our rules will not help That's why Paul says all these rules have absolutely no value in restraining the indulgence of the sinful nature. What what restrains the indulgence of the sinful nature is a love for God and for the gospel, a love for righteousness, which you have exampled as a parent, sexual righteousness, sexual purity, sexual fidelity. I mean, my sons needed to see me passionately in love with my wife and with eyes for nobody else. That's what they needed to see. 
And they knew from when they were very little. And this comes back to the question of who you spend your time with. We tried to teach our children. See, are you going to keep them safe by saying, we're going to control who your friends are? Or are you going to teach your children from infancy that being a Christian means to be merciful? There is only one kind of Christian, whether you're five years old or 50 years old. And so when our son started school, we taught them to be merciful. That is to open their eyes and see children around them who were hurting, who were lonely, who were ganged up against, who were excluded, who other children were mean to, and be kind to them. And the consequence of that was that our home quite apart from Labrie, was a place where our boys were constantly bringing friends back, many of them from very broken homes where there was all kinds of sinful behavior. Now, is this dangerous? Actually, it wasn't. One of the consequences of it was that our boys from a very early age became very familiar with families where there was adultery and every possible kind of sexual and other sin that you can imagine in the homes of their friends. And they saw such misery in those homes it didn't attract them to that kind of lifestyle. It had exactly the opposite effect. It made them appreciate ours, that we had this happy marriage and this home where people were kind to each other and where children were treated with respect and dignity rather than being cursed and ignored or spoiled, or whatever it may be. And you know, we had this parade of little kids coming into our home from the time our boys were four or five years old, from all kinds of very broken situations. And as well as, I think, for our children, it being a wonderful thing, teaching them about the nature of lived-out Christianity from a very early age, though it also meant we had this pile of kids coming into our home who just loved our home because it was so different from their homes. And the same was true all the way through high school and college. I mean, our youngest son has been living in England for the last 10 years. His friends from high school in St. Louis still come to visit us because they love our home, because it's so different from their homes. And you know, there's a, a very profound thing here, you know, rules about who you spend time with, you know, where you go, what you do, uh, are not going to help you with your children. You're teaching them to love what is beautiful and pure, just and holy, merciful and good. Living that by example, teaching it to them. And then practicing what mercy is to broken and needy people around you in your own home and encouraging them to practice that. You know, that's, that is what they need. That is what they need. Yeah, go ahead, Robert. Yeah, okay, I know I knew I'm pushing buttons here. That's okay.
I thoroughly buy that. But what are my standards? Are they God's laws or are they human laws? Well, I, I think they have to be God's laws. Amen. And when you, when you say, um, um, and I think there are enough of his laws or principles for mm. us to, to follow without creating our own. Amen. Um, and so I guess that's where the rub is. Yeah. No human rules. That's what I said. I'm, uh, what I'm criticizing are the things we add to God's Word and then impose on people as if they were equivalent to God's commandments. And we have no right to do that. Now, Jesus makes three criticisms. The one is that they're external. They're about what you eat and drink and who you're with, what you read, what you listen to, where you go what you wear, etc. So they can never produce true righteousness because they're external. God's law always aims for the heart. So all of our teaching about righteousness to our children and to the young people in our churches and to the adults in our churches, mature Christians, new Christians, all has got to be God's commandments aimed for the heart so that people fall in love with the character of God and with righteousness. I'm not at all against the law. I'm not an antinomian person. I have a passionate love for the law of God. I'm just writing a book on God's law, the, what I call it, the grace of law. And I think one of the great needs in all of our churches is teaching God's commandments much more passionately, but in a positive way, because they're beautiful. Like a good marriage is beautiful, where we're actually walking in obedience to the commandments of God in our relationship with each other. And the same in a family or in a workplace. And we need to be teaching God's standards. I have no doubt about that at all. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying just hope people catch the spirit. We have to teach the commandments of God. But Jesus makes three criticisms. The first is our rules and often our applications are external and only produce the appearance of righteousness rather than genuine righteousness. That's what hypocrisy is. It's an appearance of something that's not really there. Uh, the, the second is, he says, we have no right to add to God's commandments. I didn't give you that authority. There's plenty to teach here in his word without teaching your own stuff. No matter how wise you think it is, that's what Paul says, they have an appearance of wisdom, but they have no value in restraining the indulgence of the sinful nature. And Jesus' third criticism is even more severe. He says they make void the word of God. Now that was true with all the laws about purity in the first century because they invalidated God's laws about mercy. And that's why Jesus attacks them so strongly. And that's one of the challenges, like the pool party, example I used earlier, which is a, a ridiculous example in some ways, but it's a very common example in many of our churches. There are many such things. But what that does is undermine God's commandment to mercy. 
to those who are lost. Now let me use a very practical example, and this may be offensive to you again. When my eldest son got married, uh, he married a girl who is French. His father was uh, an African Muslim from southern Algeria who lived in France for much of his life. And my son met his uh, wife, uh, the girl who became his wife. He took his junior year from Princeton to study in Aix-en-Provence in the south of France. He met her in class. And she became a Christian through him as they got to know each other. And then just before their wedding, her father died uh, of a brain tumor. And so we did the wedding in St. Louis. Well, she came from a non-Christian family. Her, her mother was kind of nominally Christian. Her father had been a Muslim. Uh, all her friends, her sister, uh, are not Christians. But we had the wedding in, our, in there in St. Louis, actually at the seminary. And so for two weeks we had 18 people living in our home, half of them French and half of them kind of English-speaking. And the French ones hardly spoke any English at all. And it was kind of fun. But uh, most of these French people were not Christians. And her maid of honor, uh, her closest friend for many, many years, was living with her boyfriend at the time. Had been for several years. And so they came and stayed with us, and I gladly gave them a bedroom together downstairs. They're not Christian believers. Uh, they've been living together for three years already. I don't require somebody who's not a Christian to obey God's commandments about sexual purity in my home. Is this a compromise? I don't believe it is for a moment. I don't think God's compromising when he doesn't zap all the unbelievers who are having sex outside of marriage in our society. And this world belongs to him much more than my home belongs to me. I'm very serious. You know, God, Jesus, commands us to be kind to the ungrateful and wicked like our Heavenly Father who gives his good gifts to the unrighteous and to the wicked. So we happily had this couple sharing a room uh, downstairs uh, as they came to participate in my son's uh, wedding. They were so moved by what they saw um, in our home and uh, in the wedding service. It was the first time either of them, this couple, had been to church. Uh, that uh, when they went home, uh, they decided that they wanted to get married themselves. And the next year, they called us and said, you know, we're married. Can we come and stay with you on our honeymoon? Uh, and so we gave them the same room that they had stayed in as an unmarried couple. Now, uh, I am perfectly comfortable with doing such a thing because I'm not making requirements of non-Christians in terms of how they are to live before I'm prepared to have a relationship with them or before I'm prepared to have them in my home. If they need the gospel. I mean, they need to be saved. If they are lost. Their sexual behavior is not the fundamental issue it's the same with many, many other things we could name. Let me give you another practical example. I went to do a... I've done a couple of weekends for one of our graduates who's planting a church um, in Honolulu. Jerry, can I stop you right there? 
Yes. Yes. Um, and I think may, maybe I'm feeling like what a lot of people feel like is it feels like a slippery slope, but it's just easier not to get on a slippery slope by just sort of drawing mm. more clear lines. Mm. Um, yeah. Because then I can say, well, what if the person is used to smoking marijuana? Mm. You know, and, it, and is it because that's an illegal thing, you know, versus a, you know, mm. I don't, you know, just. Yeah, I understand. If I back all the way up and just sort of dump them all, I'm no. not saying that's good. I'm just no. It makes it easier in my mind to just say, no, this is what we do and this is what we don't do. Yes. Does that make sense? Yeah, I understand, Bray Watt. It's a wonderful question. I don't know if I'm asking a question. No, you, no. Yeah, no oh, it's... it's uh, <laughs> I, I, have, I appreciate it greatly. I mean, I know what I'm saying is, is, is rather challenging and, and sort of pressing, as you said, Robert. It is. Now, I understand it is. I, I, I'm not saying that anything goes, either before God or in my home or in any other setting. That's not my point. M- my point is this, and that's the point that Jesus is addressing. Am I going to require of non-Christians certain changes in their behavior before I'm prepared to have a relationship with them. That's the fundamental issue. Now, we may all come to different conclusions about what this is going to mean in our home. I used it as an example. I know it's a controversial example, but I was quite comfortable in doing it, and so is my wife, having this couple stay in our home. We've had other couples in the same situation. We're not Christians. We're just delighted that they care enough for us, they're prepared to come and stay with us. So I'm not making these hurdles for them to jump over before they enter our house. The Lord doesn't do that. And as you see Jesus in the Gospels, you see him with all kinds of people whose behavior in all kinds of ways is outrageous. But this is not a compromise of his character and it's not a slippery slope. Now, obviously, I could use such examples as as a, as a slippery slope, as an excuse to justify my own immorality, my own misbehavior. That's not what I'm doing. I am asking all of you to consider, and it's going to be different things for each one of you and, and in your churches, what does it mean for us to obey Jesus' commandment and practice to be friends with sinners and to have intimate fellowship with them. That's the question, you see. If Jesus had just preached to the sinners and criticized them, condemned them, the Pharisees and teachers of the law would have been perfectly happy. But he didn't. He didn't. In fact, the people Jesus criticizes most are the Pharisees and teachers of the law, not the sinners. Those are his, his most severe words. 
like Matthew 23, his, his woes, and other passages like that. They're, they're not directed at the unbelieving sinners in the culture. They're directed at the self-righteous. Now, it seems to me this is one of the places where we've really got it wrong. And this is really why I went to teach at Covenant. I saw Christians becoming more and more self-righteous over against the culture and more and more condemning of unbelievers. And Jesus challenges me to do exactly the opposite. He says, take the plank out of your own eye before you take the speck out of somebody else's. I mean this very seriously. My sin, my sin, the sin of Jerem Bars has to be far more serious to me than anybody else's sin. Whether the sin of a fellow believer, like you, or especially the sin of an unbeliever. With my fellow believers, I'm called to, to challenge them. Uh, as a pastor, I practice church discipline on many occasions. Uh, you, you, you may think, because of the way I've spoken, that I'm, you know, I'm an anything-goes kind of person, you know, Let's put up with adultery in the church. No. Uh, I was a pastor who practiced church discipline more than any other pastor I have known. Uh, for homosexual practice, for fornication, for adultery, for dishonest business practice, for mistreatment of employees, for malicious gossip, etc. For Christians. Uh, absolutely. They, are, they aren't even held to account to, to God's commandments. Okay, so can I, uh, yeah. can I ask a, outside of a, an example of your sons, because that's mm. too emotional. Yes, I understand. That. That's why I was going to use an example from another church, and this was about a gay couple. Well, let me come up with okay. an example. Yes. Just help me uh, work mm. through it. It's this whole um, uh, ministry, uh, I think it's called XXX Church. I don't know enough about the particular situation uh, to make a comment, but I would say, first of all, I commend them for having the courage to go into a situation like that. Uh, I think, obviously, you'd have to ask yourself a lot of very careful questions about why you were doing it, whether you had people to be accountable to, 
pornography is such a widespread problem. Uh, my guess is two-thirds of our male students are addicted to pornography when they first come to the seminary. And I say that's true all over this country. Uh, my, my guess is among young men in general, it's probably 80 to 90 percent. And uh, uh, among young Christians, probably two-thirds who are struggling with it. And, uh, uh, and our call as seminary professors is uh, we all spend a great deal of time helping young men and increasingly young women as well because the most rapidly growing area of pornography right now on the Internet is for women. So this is a huge issue. It isn't going to just go away. And uh, you know, our calling is to help people to, to deal with these things. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, anybody who is going to put themselves in a setting where they're surrounded by lots of pornography uh, has to ask themselves, why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I doing this out of genuine love for these people or because I actually find this interesting? Uh, and that requires some ruth ruthless uh, honesty about one's own heart. Uh, but, and a uh, second thing I would say, it's obviously helpful to have people to be accountable to in such a setting, which is one of the things we try to get our students to do who are struggling with pornography to, uh, to develop a bit of personal accountability uh, in terms of having somebody they can talk to about what's happening or who has access to the internet sites they visit or something like that. Uh, but, you know, there are many... A any Christian who goes into any workplace in Britain is going to be subjected all day long to hearing blasphemy and cursing. And in most workplaces, there will be pornographic calendars, etc. A Christian can't say, I'm not coming here because of the sin of these unbelievers. True, but there are rules in many workplaces that, that at least try to stymie that or squelch that to some degree. Mm -hmm. I, I, I agree with you. I think the workplace and a porn convention are not in the, that is apples to oranges. Um, uh, I wouldn't go to a porn convention, but but I'm not going and to. I'm not going. Even though I love mercy and want to be a friend to sinners, I could not do that. Well, every, people have particular callings. Right. You know, many, many, many of you are not going to go and work in Morocco or in Afghanistan or Pakistan in a in a completely Islamic society. Uh, but you would never say it was wrong for somebody else to do it. And uh, I wouldn't argue for a moment that everybody should go be prepared to go into por in, into pornographic conventions. Uh, if God calls people to do that, you know, that's his particular calling of them. But I'm certainly not going to judge them. But I'm certainly not going to say everybody else is going to do it any more than has to do that, any more than I'm going to say that everybody has to go and work in an Islamic society to preach the gospel. You know, that's a particular calling. But w whatever situation in which we go to serve the Lord, we're going to be surrounded by people who are idolaters and sinners in one way or another. And my question for all of us, 
I'm not telling you what particular places you've got to go. What I am saying is this. The gospel requires us all to be friends of sinners. And it requires us to teach people in our churches to be friends of sinners. And it requires us to teach our children to be friends of sinners rather than to judge them. Now, what the particular calling of the individual is, is up to them. You know, as a pastor, you, you teach people to do justice, to love mercy, to care for widows and orphans, but you don't tell people this is the particular ministry you have to do. Let me ask you a question, Robert. Yes. Fine. Understand. And so I'm just really, that kind of messed me up when you said that mm. you allowed fornication under your roof mm. when you're, you're the light. And I'm not, mm. how do you reconcile that? That's a great question. Well, let me remind you of what I said. This whole world belongs to God far more than my home, that physical building, belongs to me. It's the Lord's, just like everything else around here. I'm simply his tenant. That's what scripture teaches me. The Lord is constantly gracious and kind to the wicked. He doesn't blast fornicating couples. He wants to save them. When they come to him, he calls them to change their lives. My house... With, in which I am a tenant of the Lord. Yes, I've taught my own children to be faithful and to be chaste and now to be faithful in marriage, and they were and they are. They didn't fornicate in our house. They are my house, my children. That's my household, not the building itself. And those who come to know the Lord in the church where I served as a pastor were called to righteousness. If they committed fornication or adultery, they were disciplined. So I'm not setting aside God's standards in any way. 
What I am challenging you to think about, though, is before somebody is a Christian, do I have the right to demand of them obedience to either God's commandments or my house rules before I have a relationship with them, before I welcome them to my home and am prepared to have intimate fellowship with them? You too, sir. <laughs> I know this is very challenging, what I'm saying. Well, I mean, I think that at the end of the day, uh-huh. I think that uh, if, when my friends come and they're in that situation, they know mm. if you're not married. You, you, can't, you can sleep in the couch because you're not married. Mm. And this is a house that we try to live by the, the, the mandate of the Lord. And, and uh, so respect, and respect me here. Mm. And I will respect the fact that you'll go get a hotel room or at, in my house you don't smoke. You can smoke on the back porch. Um, but, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, I understand. It's a good point to consider. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yes. Jerem. I just want to repeat in my mind what I've been saying. Yes, I am saying that. I think that's I think that's exactly the point. Do I think that I know better than God? Now we're dealing with two different issues here. One is is somebody gonna fornicate in my home who's not a Christian? The other is am I gonna teach rules in addition to what God's word says? We've got two different questions here. One is what my relationship with unbelievers and sinners What do I require of them before I'm prepared to have a relationship? The second is, am I going to add things to God's commandments for my own children, for the young people in the church, or for the people of the church, or for the pool party we have, or whatever it is? And at those points, yes, I would say there, if we feel we have to add to what God has said, or apply it with a specific rule, this principle about modesty, of dress or whatever, because it is a biblical principle, of course. But again, we're talking about non-Christians here. If we feel we have to apply it, we're saying, we know better than God how to protect our children and how to preach the gospel. And we don't know better than God. That's why Paul says it has an appearance of wisdom to add to God's commandments all these rules about clothing, about food, about drink, about this, about that. But it doesn't restrain sin, and it's actually displeasing to the Lord, because we're saying to him, in effect, what you have said is not sufficient. We need to add to it. And we don't. He knows better than we do what we actually need. And we need his commandments. And we need to 
passionately devote ourselves to the obedience of those and to the teaching of those. So it's very easy to misunderstand what I'm saying and think that I'm into compromising God's commandments. Not for a moment. I don't think anybody misunderstands. Okay, yes, sir. You have Uh, your hand up. Their sins. Yeah, I understand. It's a great question. Okay, and that's a really wonderful question. Let me give a couple of examples in replying, and then then give you a principle. The example I was going to use from Honolulu for one of our graduates. Uh, I'll, I'll use that example here because I think it will be helpful. He's planning this church there, which is just flourishing. Um, One of his elders teaches at the university, and his assistant for many years uh, is a lesbian woman who's in a relationship with another woman and has been for many, many years. And these two women have two adopted sons. Uh, They were doing such a good job with the first one that the grandmother of the second uh, came to them and said, you know, his mother's on drugs. She's doing a terrible job. You're doing such a great job. Would you please take my grandson? So they now have two boys. The elder loves these kids and he picks them up every Sunday and brings them to church. And they love the church. And the two women have started coming. The church has lunch together every Sunday. And the two women have started coming every Sunday to pick up the boys and come to lunch. I happened to sit at the table with them when the last time I was there doing a weekend for him. And I think the pastor has taught the congregation well. They're welcoming these two women. Um, People are getting to know them well. The boys are loving the gospel and the church. Uh, uh, The mothers are beginning to love the people. Now, uh, at what point is it necessary for 
somebody to talk to them about the relationship. When they become believers, the pastor is going to have to challenge them that they are going to have to stop sleeping together. He can't ask them to move out. They're the only parents these children have. But their relationship is going to have to change if they're converted. But uh, at the at the point of their coming to faith, that's where it's going to have to be addressed. Uh, let me give another example here. This is well, it it might. Well, it, it might, but the question is, what what is the most important thing in these people's lives? What is the barrier between them and God that has to be addressed? Is it the presenting sin, or is it whatever the fundamental idol of the heart is? That's what actually needs to be addressed, not the obvious sin to us. My, my father, for example like all English men basically, just to curse all the time, every third or fourth word. I mean, that's the way most English men speak. When I became a Christian, I didn't need to talk to him about that. You know, he was a passionately committed Marxist. Where he needed to be addressed was the idolatry of his heart, not his language. I wasn't going to say to him, Dad, I find this language offensive. You know, please stop taking God's name in vain. Now, that's not where he needed to be spoken at. When he became a Christian at the age of 75, six weeks before he died of cancer, he stopped cursing. He never cursed again. Nobody needed to tell him not to. He didn't want to take God's name in vain anymore. He loved him. Uh, I never needed to address it. Um, what skin is it off my nose? Why would I be bothered? And seriously, I'm asking. It's much more bothersome to me if I hear a Christian taking God's name in vain by saying bless you or I'll pray for you when they don't mean it and they're just pretending to be spiritual that's much more offensive to God than any non-Christian cursing I, I don't mean people should curse that's not my point but I don't need to address people that they're presenting sin I need to deal with the fundamental issue of the heart before God who are they what, what is standing between them and the Lord let me give another example this is a good example because it raises the issue of fornication again and this is a very common problem in our culture. I mean, it's not going to go away. <laughs> this is a huge problem we're, we're, we're in terms of almost everybody we know out there who isn't a believer. This is a reality in our cultural setting. We had this couple. Well, that, that we, we didn't know them, but a woman in our church had gotten to know them. The woman had four sons, all by different men. She had never been married. And she had slept with at least a hundred men over the years. At the time she was living with a guy, they'd been together for about a year when this happened. And uh, she, uh, one of the women in our church would often babysit these kids when the, the man and the woman were out for the evening. And she had got to know them real well. So uh, the sort of turn came on Christmas Eve they had gone out doing all their Christmas shopping. They'd left all the food and the presents till the last day, and they were in our local town doing all their shopping. They went back to the shops to get one last thing. They came back. Somebody had broken into their car and stolen everything, 
and they had no presents for the kids, for these four, four little boys, for each other, uh, no Christmas dinner, and no more money. And they came home looking really miserable, and our friend happened to be cycling past, and she said, what's the problem? And they told her, and so she got on the phone to me, and we rang around, and uh, between us got together more than they had stolen. Uh, and she was the only person in the church who knew them. So, so she takes all this stuff, and they're just overwhelmed. So the next Sunday they come to church. And this woman is wearing clothes. Um, he talked about hems. Well, <laughs> Robert, her dresses came down to here, and they came up to about here. And they didn't leave much to the imagination. <laughs> but that's how she had dressed for years. I mean, this is who she was. And uh, the guys had to, in the churches had to learn not to look. I mean, the, you, you don't say to a non-Christian, go home and change. You know, this is difficult for the men. You, you, you're just delighted these people are coming to church. You know, it was kind of amazing to see them there. And uh, they were just so thrilled. And they came every Sunday. And at the time, I was in the summer... After about six months, I was going through a series on the Ten Commandments. And I got to, you shall not commit adultery. And I was talking about what God has to say about sexuality and chastity and fidelity. And uh, afterwards, they came to see me and they said, Jerem, they're listening to your sermon today where we guessed that there's probably something irregular in our relationship. <laughs> And uh, to say the least, there was. But uh, but uh, uh, could we talk about it? And I said, I'm happy to talk about it. When do you talk about it? I'm happy to talk about it, but I'm much more interested in what you're thinking about, what you're hearing about Jesus. You know, you've been coming to church for some time now. Uh, what do you think about what you hear every week? What about what we believe? And... Uh, so we had a wonderful conversation. It's obvious they're very close to being converted. And uh, the end of the discussion, we came back to it, and they said, but we do want to talk about our relationship. And I said, fine, I'm happy to talk about it. Because uh, I'm not going to put these things off. I'm happy to talk about it if people ask. And sometimes, of course, it's appropriate to raise it, depending on the setting, but not in a condemnatory kind of way. So I, I said to... I mean, I was thinking, first I asked them some questions about whether they'd understood my sermon about chastity and then fidelity within marriage. And yeah, they, they got it. So I said, well, you know, as you think about your relationship, basically, uh, I think that you need to ask the question, is our relationship equivalent to a marriage uh, where there's real commitment? You know, Joe, are you prepared to look after these four kids? that are not yours for the rest of their lives and be a father to them. You know, is this really a marriage or is this a relationship of convenience for sex and food and company and friendship and laundry? But that's about it. You know, that, that's the question. Um, and, you know, I, I'd suggest you go away and talk about it and think about that. And, uh, but I thought I'm much more concerned what you, what you think about the Lord. So, you know, they went away. They came back the next week, and uh, basically we had a conversation in which uh, they came to faith. And uh, at the end of it, they said, we've thought about what you said, and we've decided it's a relationship of convenience. 
So Joe's moving out today. And uh, I said, well, that's great. They were baptized the next week uh, as believers. And uh, a year later they came to me and said, we would like to get married. And, uh, and she said, at my wedding service, so all my family and all our friends in the community here know the way I've lived. And she'd just been reading through John's Gospel for the first time in her life. And, and she said, uh, I would like you to preach a sermon on the woman at the well for my wedding. Because everybody around here knows the way I've lived. And they will think you're a complete fool for marrying somebody like me in a church. But I want them to know that you know the kind of person I've been. And... Uh, you know, that, that was really wonderful. But yeah, of course I'm prepared to talk to people, but the question is when and why? When and why? Am I sa- saying, I'll, I'm going to talk to you about this because our relationship can't develop unless you get this sorted out. You can't come to church anymore until you get this sorted out. Or uh, are we going to say this in terms of a person coming to the Lord and then what repentance looks like in turning away from from the way they have lived? Or are we going to say, repent first, and then we'll take the gospel down the road? Because if we're doing that, we're preaching another gospel. Okay, can I do this? Can I stop right here? Because I committed from 7 to 9, and I always hate being in meetings. But Jared's going to hang around, so if you've got the burning question, you know, uh, you can ask that question. Jared, thank you for coming. Well, Thank you for being patient and uh, asking some great questions. Amen. Thank you.